Hello, bonjour, and tantse. I'm Paula Simons. Welcome to Alberta Unbound and to part three of the Merv Leach Memorial Lecture on Constitutional Law. On March 22nd, I had the honor and privilege of presenting the Leach Lecture to the law schools of the University of Calgary and the University of Alberta. The annual lecture commemorates the work of Merv Leach, who was Attorney General and later Minister of Energy in the governments of Peter Lougheed. You can hear the lecture in parts one and two of this three-part series. I, I hope you've already listened. Uh, if not, I'd, I'd invite you to go do so now. But hey, the lecture itself is over, and we're moving on to the question and answer period where I get to be in the hot seat. The Q&A was moderated by two of the winners of the Leach Scholarships and Prizes endowed by the Lougheed family. Lee Klipperstein, a law student at the University of Alberta, and Flutra Kachuri, a law student from the University of Calgary. As you'll hear, Lee, Flutra, and I covered a lot of ground. Here's our conversation. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I want to say thank you to Senator Simons and uh, to the Leach family and all of the uh, donors, as well as both law faculties. So yeah, please get your questions into the Q&A and we will get them to the Senator as soon as we have. And there is one in here right now. Uh, so I will start with this. Uh, Senator Simons, there are now 15 vacancies in the Senate, the longest of which dates to November, 2019. At what point does the volume or duration of vacancies affect the Senate's ability to function or the quality of its work? I think we've already reached that point. I'm quite cross about this. We've had a Senate vacancy in British Columbia. I actually thought it was earlier than November. I think it's August of 2019 uh, that Richard Neufeld, a uh, conservative senator from BC, retired. So BC, which only gets six senators, has had only five senators since before the pandemic. Uh, Alberta, which only gets six senators, is down to four. Prince Edward Island, which gets four senators, is down to two. So I, I, think this is a, I think this is a problem, and I think it's a significant problem for the West, because Alberta and British Columbia are already underrepresented significantly in the Senate, and the fact that BC and Alberta have been short senators for this long is upsetting to me. I was very happy to welcome my new Alberta colleague, Karen Sorensen, the former mayor of Banff, who joined the Senate a couple of months ago. But I would like to send a message to the Prime Minister through all channels possible, I understand that there have been a lot of other things going on. Uh, you know, there's been a pandemic, there's a war in Ukraine, there have been a lot of other crises, but the Senate to do its job well needs to have as close to a full complement of senators as possible to get that diversity and especially that regional diversity, which is so important to our work. Here we have another question. The question is, what, if anything, can be done to maintain our reformed independent Senate beyond a change in government? That is a really, really good question, because although I applaud the Prime Minister for the ingenuity and the creativity of his reform project, it is thus far in no way enshrined. It, is his, it was his personal choice to do this, and if the government were to fall tomorrow, which is less likely today than it was yesterday, a new, a new Prime Minister from a different party could adopt a different system. What we need to do sooner than later is to pass amendments to the, uh, to the Parliament of Canada Act that would enshrine the idea of having an independent nonpartisan Senate. And again, I'm not happy that the government has taken this long to do this. Uh, it's been very frustrating for many of us in the Senate. 
And, and I say this, I mean, please don't think I'm being coy. I've never met the prime minister. Uh, I, I'm a member of the Senate. I'm an independent senator. Sometimes I get to speak to, to cabinet ministers. I reach out to them. I, I spoke to Seamus O'Regan, the labor minister. Uh, we were in contact all over the weekend uh, talking about the CP rail Teamsters uh, labor dispute. So it's not that I am divorced from what happens over there, but I don't have a pipeline to the prime minister's office. I would, I would strongly encourage the government and anybody from the government who might be listening to, to, to do what you can to make these Senate reforms something that is ongoing. At this point, though, even if the government were to fall tomorrow and there were to be a new prime minister, there have been an extraordinary number of independent senators appointed, and it's pretty, un pretty hard to unscramble that omelet. Um, this one says, I believe that Quebec's Bill 21 offends against the Charter. Uh, what is your view and how should that be addressed? I am appalled by Quebec's Bill 21. For those of you who, you can get lost in the thicket of all these numbers. So Bill 21 is Quebec legislation that um, banned people who wear uh, a yarmulke, a hijab, a, a turban from holding certain uh, roles in the public sector. It, it originally was a much broader ban, but now it's specifically teachers, um, judges, police officers. I forget all the categories, but it's not quite as broad as it used to be. I was one of a group of senators uh, of Jewish, Sikh, uh, and Muslim descent who signed a joint letter uh, denouncing Bill 21. To me, I, I'm, not, I'm not a practicing Jew. My father was Jewish, but... To me, the idea that you concoct a law that specifically discriminates against Muslims, Muslims, Sikhs, and Jews in 21st century Canada, and, and I have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of very dear friends who are Quebec senators. I understand that in Quebec this is viewed very differently, but for me, this is not this is not a complicated question. The question is, what can the Senate do about it? Which is, apart from write letters and speak out publicly. Not much, because this is provincial legislation. It, it, there, it doesn't come before the Senate in any way. So we can exercise some moral leadership and some moral suasion, but that is sort of the extent of what I can do. I can tell you, I was really touched right after Bill 21 passed. Um, it was or not long after. It was read-in week in Edmonton, where I visit many schools to speak to students and, and read to them. And I was really struck by the number of junior high and high school students who were outraged about Bill 21, a Quebec piece of legislation. But to them, it really hit home. It was legislation that said that, that people like them were second-class citizens in one part of Canada. And I don't think that that's something that, that should be allowed. But there's our friend, the notwithstanding clause. <laughs> Thank you. We have another question here from an attendee. And it relates to the uh, independent senators as well. Can you please elaborate on the significance of the decision to set up an arm's length panel and appoint independent senators? Question mark. Um, and whether there are any implications to that? Yeah. So, I mean, up until five years ago, senators were patronage appointments. And I don't say that disparagingly because Alberta has been gifted with some really remarkable senators, people like Ron Gitter, Tommy Banks, Elaine McCoy, uh, Thelma Shalafu, Jean Forrest, uh, uh, Claudette Tardif. I mean, we've had some amazing senators from Alberta. At Doug Roche, uh, I, won't, I won't give you the whole list. And some of those appointments were really quite inspired. I mean, Elaine McCoy, 
was a, conser- a progressive conservative cabinet minister in the provincial government in Alberta, who was appointed by Paul Martin, a liberal prime minister. And she was the founder of the independent senators group. So we've got a long track record of maverick senators from Alberta. But you can see with patronage appointments, there's always a risk that whoever the prime minister, he or she might be, will appoint friends, cronies, donors to the party, people who are owed political favors. So the idea of having it be independent was to open it so that people, you didn't have to be a political actor to have a chance to be a senator. So now anybody can apply. Anybody over the age of 30 who is a Canadian citizen and who owns $4,000 worth of real property. It's the same property provision that was put in the BNA Act in 1867. So you had to be just super rich to own $4,000 worth of real property in 1867. Now, I think in Vancouver, $4,000 gets you like this much. But, um, but that, that's, uh, that's the only criteria. And then it's based on merit. So the idea is to have it as apolitical and as nonpartisan as possible. So we have had on that selection committee, um, I think both the former president of the U of A and a former president of the U of C have served on that selection committee at various times. Uh, Melissa Blake, the mayor of Wood Buffalo, has served on that selection committee. Uh, So the idea was to try to get people who were not politically partisan themselves and who were people of gravitas and, you know, people who had some sense of, of, you know, who should be called upon to be a senator. It is an imperfect system because any arm's length committee is only as good as the length of its arms. And so the people who are appointed are those patronage. I mean, you know, you, you could have you could have a knees on a beam of turtles all the way down. You can't have an independent selection committee to appoint the independent selection committee to appoint the independent selection committee. At a certain point, politics does come into play as with, as with the judges uh, appointment selection panels. The other thing that's it's really important to stress is that the prime minister of the day makes the final decision. And I think that's appropriate because somebody has to be held responsible if a senator who was appointed is corrupt or unconscionably lazy and just doesn't show up. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the prime minister has to wear the responsibility for making the final appointment, but he's given a very short, short list from which to choose. So I can tell you when I applied, you have to write an essay about why you think you'd be a good senator. So that was lucky for me. I'm good at writing essays. Uh, I had to get, you get three to five letters of recommendation. Everybody has a different strategy. I decided I would get three letters from people who were completely apolitical. Uh, not connected to the Liberal Party or the Progressive Conservative Party or any Conservative Party, just you know, three letters from from people who knew me in various facets of my professional life, and you know, you have to answer a bunch of school testing questions. Eventually, you have to pass a security background check to make sure that you're neither a spy nor likely to be blackmailed by spies. It's very exciting, and I applied and heard nothing for seven or eight months, and I thought that you know, oh well. That was fun to apply. It was good for my ego to read my letters of recommendation. But uh, when I did get the call, it was, it was quite a shock. And I said to the prime minister, I feel like a dog who chased a car and then caught it. So. Thank you, Senator. There's a brief gap in questions. So I, uh, I have one for you. I think Go ahead. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would say that, uh, that you are a fan of the living uh, tree approach over originalism. I'm curious what you think the, uh, 
you know, extent of that is? Like, where does that stop? Well, that's a really good question because do you want to say, oh, well, we've decided the Senate's no good anymore and so we'll get rid of it. Living tree, time to prune. This is an interesting question. I think that what we've seen in the case law in both the person's case and the Vreen decision gives us some suggestion of where the boundaries are, which is to say, looking at an expansive and generous view of charter rights, as opposed to you know, some of the other nitty gritty of the constitutional machinery. So I think that it's with that sense of you know, the, the, the long arc of history bending towards justice that I think it makes the most sense. The trouble if I'm being honest, is that I can be hoist on my own petard. And if social mores change and we enter into a more conservative phase of, of government and public life, am I comfortable with a world in which we can decide that we go backwards? I am not comfortable with that. But I grant you that I, I leave open that door. Thank you. One of our award winners, Brooke Mante, has a question. How do you believe protecting the Constitution's living tree interpretation affects language rights, specifically in minority contexts, beyond simply just the protection of minorities in Section 23 of the Charter? Well, I think it depends if you're talking about um, French and English rights versus Indigenous language or, or other heritage language rights. Uh, I would say that the protections for minority language rights in when we're talking about English and French are well enshrined. And we are about to receive uh, a, a new, uh, an amended Official Languages Act, which, uh, which will look to that. And I've been meeting uh, with representation, representatives of the Francophonie outside Quebec, who are particularly keen to see enhanced protections for the French language in places like Alberta and Manitoba and New Brunswick and Ontario. And so I think it is really important that we be very clear in the Constitution that those two official languages have that protection. It's tougher in Quebec because protection for English language rights in Quebec runs up against the political exigencies of the fact that no federal political party is interested in going to war with Quebec about the fact that English language rights in Quebec may not get the same protections as French language rights in New Brunswick. So that is some of the realpolitik of that. This leads then to the interesting question of languages other than French and English. And there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about what should be the protections according to, say, Inuktitut in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories, where it is still very much a living language and spoken, you know, spoken as a first language by many people. Should there be special protections in the charter for Inuktitut? If they're there for Inuktitut, should they be there for Cree? If they're there for Cree, should they be there for, you know, as and as you go along and down, this raises really interesting questions about how we perceive the paradigm of our country. What is the matrix on which we are built? I mean, when I was growing up, we heard about the two founding, two founding nations, the two founding languages. If you ask my Indigenous colleagues in the Senate, they are deeply offended by that language. Uh, they say they are, you know, they are the founding nations and, and everybody else is a Johnny come lately. And who can gainsay them? I mean, they're absolutely right. So I think this is still a conversation we need to have. As for other languages, I mean, we're really lucky in Alberta. Not everybody knows. And I want to give, uh, I mean, we, I give lots and lots and lots of props to Peter Lougheed who dragged us into the 20th century 
and who passed uh, Alberta's first multiculturalism legislation. But multiculturalism actually predated Lougheed and was an idea that Harry Strom, of all people, poor forgotten Harry Strom, championed. And I think it's really important to note that in Alberta, we have long championed the idea of multiculturalism and multilingual funding for multilingual schooling so that we have robust Ukrainian bilingual and Arabic bilingual and Spanish bilingual and I think now Tagalog bilingual and, and all of these other programs, which are not constitutionally protected. But I think that Alberta has been in the vanguard of recognizing that as a multicultural country, people come here with mother tongues that are not French and English. Okay, the next question we have here um, is, as we see a Supreme Court in the U.S. that is stuck in the seance mind reading of what the framers were thinking, uh, why do you think Canada and Canadians generally have accepted the living tree argument? Uh, and if you really want to get into detail, when will the courts uh, recognize the legitimacy of municipal governments which have no constitutional recognition? Ah, well, these are two separate but equally important questions. I mean, it is, it is one of those accidents of history. I mean, if Lord Sankey hadn't been the Lord Chancellor, if Lord Sankey hadn't written that decision, if Lord Sankey hadn't been a great writer with a gift for metaphor and a champion, I mean, he went on to draft, I think it's the, the, you know, the, the Declaration of Rights that was part of the League of Nations. So he was really a revolutionary thinker when it came to understanding civil rights and civil liberties. If it hadn't been for the fact that we had Lord Sankey and his living tree metaphor, we might have had a very different constitutional history. And it is fair to, you know, to argue that Lord Sankey was an imperialist colonist. I mean, I mean, it is kind of outrageous if you think about it, that one of our, one of our foundational constitutional principles didn't come from a Canadian court at all. It came from a British court. I mean, it is kind of wacky. And I will acknowledge the hypocrisy that if that ruling had been very conservative, I would have spent the last years of my life fighting against it and arguing that it was outrageous that Britain could impose its imperialist yoke upon us as late as 1929. So I am at least aware of my, of my logical failings. But I think that you know, if it weren't for Lord Sankey, we might have had a very, very different and much more literalist constitutional history. I don't know if we ever would have been quite as literalist as the Americans. I think there is an American talent for hagiography for their, you know, I mean, they think about George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson in a very different way than we think about Sir John A. Macdonald and Alexander Mackenzie. I think Canadians just generally temperamentally don't make heroes out of their politicians and their founding fathers. And I don't just think that's because our founding was a hundred years after theirs. I think there's something, I think it's got to do, if I'm blunt, with the number of Scottish people who settled this country. I think the Scots are a lot less enamored of that kind of hero worship. And I think there's a lot of Scottish DNA in Canada's political culture and in our constitutional history. So I think that's why we don't make a fetish out of the text in the same way. As for municipal governments, uh, some of you may know that I have recently launched an inquiry in the Senate about uh, the role of municipalities in Canada. I suspect the person who asked this question knows that I launched that, um, that inquiry. Uh, we're gifted in the Senate right now to have a lot of former mayors. I mentioned Karen Sorensen from Banff. Uh, there's also uh, Bernadette Clement, who's the former uh, mayor of Cornwall, Ontario, and Eric Forêt, who's the former mayor of Rimouski. And they've joined with me in this sort of campaign in the Senate to 
to focus more attention on the rights and responsibilities of municipalities. And the fact that municipalities are still very much caught up in this feudal relationship as children of the province. It ill behooves me to comment on provincial political affairs, but I could not help but note that a recent member of the provincial government referred to municipalities as children who need to be spanked. And leaving aside the political incorrectness of that metaphor in all kinds of ways, I do not think that in a country where we have cities of a million plus people, that it makes any sense to deny municipalities which are on the front lines of so many important public policy decisions, any kind of agency. And if municipal government acts can be amended at a whim uh, to, to, you know, to take away rights that cities have exercised responsibly for years, I think that's really problematic. We have a question from an attendee looking for your opinion, uh, an educated guess, quote unquote, whether the use of, they're wondering where the use of the notwithstanding clause will go, whether it will be more common and accepted 20 years from now. I think the thing about the notwithstanding clause, I mean, when I look at Bill 21, I think, oh, Merv Leach, Peter Lougheed, what have you done? What were you thinking? How could you put something in the constitution that allows the Quebec government to trammel on the rights of religious minorities in this way? I'm grumpy about that. But I think that what the examples I gave from the Ralph Klein period show is that a politician who cares about being reelected will be cautious about invoking a clause, which is sort of the nuclear option. When the Klein government, uh, I think John Havelock was his um, uh, justice minister at the time, when they did it in the case of the eugenics victims, I don't think, I mean, I actually, I, I take Premier Klein at his word, they didn't sit down and go, <laughs> how can we make sure that people who were already victims of one of the worst crimes committed by the Alberta government cannot sue for justice? I think they really were thinking, well, that's a lot of money. Maybe we should figure out a way. And in, in the end, they did, they did come to uh, a, an agreement so that each individual person didn't have to pursue uh, a damage claim. But I think, you know, they got their fingers burnt and it was a pretty powerful demonstration of the fact that you can overstep as a government and then that you can be held accountable. The challenge is when you're talking about minority rights, the majority might not always hold you accountable when you take away those minority rights. And we see that in Quebec. So I think that governments will continue to be very leery of using the notwithstanding clause as long as we, the voters and citizens, hold governments accountable. It only becomes easy to use if we allow it to be. And when I think back to the Vreen decision and the eugenics decision in Alberta, that was at a time when the Edmonton Journal had a huge circulation and a large public voice and editors and a publisher who were willing to really speak out loudly in, in opposition to a government. In today's journalism universe, we're not in quite the same place. But I think it's actually incumbent on each and every one of us, which is why I said that thing at the end about how we're all gardeners of the living tree, which I grant you was pushing the metaphor quite a ways. But it is up to us. If you don't want your governments to invoke the notwithstanding clause, you have to be the one who says, no, there's a huge political price for that. Senator Simons, we're now at the end of our time and there are several uh, questions in the queue. So I think we will do one more if that's okay with you. Sure. We have seven minutes. I'll shut up now and let you ask the question. So this is about the Constitution more generally speaking. I think is what do you think of replacing Canada's constitutional documents? 
how long do you think Canada should work with the two current documents uh, before starting to draft new ones? Oh, I don't think we should. I mean, drafting new ones, amending what we have, that's one thing. Drafting whole new ones, that that's probably not a path we want to consider going down. I mean, this one's only 40 years old. I mean, I'm 57. I don't think 40 is that old. Uh, I think there's room for amendment. The challenge is that the amending formula sets an extremely high bar. Seven provinces representing at least 50% of the population is the standard amending formula. And provinces are very disinclined to act against their own interests. So say, for example, I'm grumpy that Alberta and BC only get six senators and that Nova Scotia and New Brunswick get 10. Is that fair? That's not fair. Are New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI eager to give up some of their Senate seats to give them to British Columbia and Alberta? No. So that is the problem. I think, though, that you know, governments have been leery of amending because it seems so difficult. And eventually the time will come that a government is going to have to bite the bullet and say, no, we actually do need to go back in and do some amendments. But for that, you're going to have to have a political consensus to get something passed. And that is not going to be easy. Now, Lee, you had one more thing you want to squeeze in, I think. I think we were going to squeeze in just one more question. Okay, one more question. Go ahead. One more question. I can do one more question. Uh, The question was, how does the Emergencies Act get revoked, but the government is still able to keep some part of it, in quotes, tools in their toolbox? The Emergencies Act is revoked. It's just revoked, period. But people who were arrested under the terms of the Emergencies Act are still going to face the consequences of of those charges. Tools in the toolbox, I think that was a reference to the whole issue of regulating um, dark money coming in through sites like um, GoFundMe and GiveSend. What is it called? GiveSendGo? I forget the name of the other one. And so I think there's been some discussion on the common side about how how we need to figure out tracing money through those accounts. And that's not just for political reasons. That's for money laundering and, you know, drugs and international spy operations about which we're suddenly, suddenly much more alert these days. That's not going to happen automatically. Uh, I think what the government is going to have to do is it'll have to, it'll have to amend legislation and that legislation will be debated and voted on in the House of Commons and then debated and voted on in the Senate. So it's really important to stress that the government can't just wake up and do things. All governments themselves sometimes fall victim to the delusion that they can just wake up and do things. And in some legislatures, that's easier than others. In in a minority parliament with a strong Senate, it's much harder for any government to just wake up and, and, and change something. And that concludes our triptych, slicing up my recent Leech Lecture in Constitutional Law into three nice chunks. My thanks to award-winning law students Lee Klipperstein and Flutra Kachuri for moderating that question and answer period. And my thanks again to Dean Barbara Billingsley of the University of Alberta Law School and Dean Ian Holloway of the University of Calgary Law School for inviting me to give this year's lecture and for allowing us to make it a part of Alberta Unbound. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings, and the Leech Lectures were produced by Yvonne Kuster of the U of A and Peter Desmond Daw from the U of C, with technical operations and sound recording by Tim Young. I want to also give a special thanks to the Lawheed and Leech families for supporting the Leech Lecture Series and for their legacy of public service to this province. 
Thank you also to you for listening. Merci and hi hi.